done this a number of times. This is our 29th Easter. Uh, so, and we have, you know, we have four Gospels. Uh, and we find the resurrection story in those. Uh, but we're not even going to go to the gospel stories about the resurrection this morning. What we're going to do is jump all the way over into 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. This is very often called the resurrection chapter. Uh, Paul talks a lot about the resurrection of Christ in this particular part of this epistle. Uh, and uh, there's a lot for us to glean from it. So we are going to read uh, uh, 58 verses this morning. So bear with me and pray for me as I read this lengthy piece of scripture. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as uh, first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I was least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead in the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as... By a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain, if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for... Tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from a star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus is it written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a a life-giving spirit. That it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image of, of, born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always bounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lots of words in one chapter. It's a big chunk of the whole epistle of First Corinthians. So why am I reading it this morning? Because it has everything to do with the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ being the beginning of all of it, but he also is talking about our future resurrection that will take place at the second coming of Christ. There are a lot of people out there today, and I used to be one of them for a good part of my adult life, who really questioned the whole idea of resurrection. Practically speaking, it makes a lot of sense. When, when people die, then that's kind of the end, right? We know that their body turns into dust and this, that, and the other, and whatever. But the resurrection of Jesus is perhaps one of the most scrutinized fact in all, facts in all of human history. In other words, there have been more people that looked into it in as much depth, depth as they possibly can. The whole idea of resurrection is contrary to what people basically experience in life. We know this. This is just practical, logical sense that we're all, if we don't, we're not born with it, we learn it very soon in life. And that is a simple truth, and that is that dead people stay dead. I mean, we hear every now and then stories about people, you know, kind of miraculously coming through some difficult, life-threatening situations, and we've heard on occasion maybe about someone who was technically dead for just a brief moment, and then they came back to life in a sense. But we're talking about someone <laughs> that was dead, dead for a very lengthy period of time. And taking up his life again. It goes against all human based knowledge and sense. Because we all know that truly dead people stay dead. Have you ever seen anyone come back to life that passed away? Ever? We learn a lot, a lot of things through life, but one of the things that life has taught us over and over again is that, that people who are truly dead stay dead. I would dare say that none of us in this room know of one single true exception of that. When life ceases, life ceases completely and permanently. 
don't know if you realize this or not, but one of the things that actually connects Christianity and Judaism and Islam is that they all believe in a resurrection. Most religions don't. Actually, there, you know, as far as Greek philosophy itself went, it was, it was like Plato referred to the body as the prison house of the soul. In other words, it's a good thing for you to die because as long as you're alive, then your spirit is imprisoned in your body. And so when your body dies, then your spirit is set free. That was the common Greek thought. But what we find here in, in this first epistle to the Corinthians is the most exhaustive list of those people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And we're not talking about one or two. We are talking about over 500 people. Now let me ask you something. If you heard 500 people testifying to the very same thing, would you tend to believe that they're right? And I don't know if you realize this or not, but the biblical standard for establishing truth is not 500 people, it's two people. In other words, if only two people had experienced and seen the resurrected Christ, it would have been sufficient to satisfy biblical terms. But God has given us a great multitude of witnesses that testify to the truth of this other, otherwise unbelievable thing that actually happened. Even so, Paul is aghast because there are people who are calling themselves Christians in the Corinthian church that he actually planted himself or took part in planting himself for denying the resurrection of the dead and even denying the resurrection of Jesus himself. And he's saying, what is wrong with you? Have you lost your mind? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you, guess what, are still in your sins. No resurrection, no forgiveness of sins. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the, the best attested to facts on record. There were so many witnesses to behold it that if we do in the least receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and we dare not doubt that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Charles Colson wrote this. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact. 
And Watergate proved it to me. Can you imagine that? <laughs> this is what he says. He said, how? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed the truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me the 12 apostles kept alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Billy Graham, there's more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there is that Julius Caesar ever lived or that Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. Josh McDowell, after more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I've come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, heartless hoaxes ever fostered upon the minds of men. Doesn't sound too good, does it? Or, don't you love that or sometimes? Or it is the most fantastic fact of history either one or the other. The fact is, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our faith is empty. It's useless. It's worthless. Because it's not based upon truth. It's based upon a lie. If Christ was not raised of all people, we are most to be pitied because we have based everything on fiction. And there's another thing that we need to think about, and that is this. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then neither will we be. Because our resurrection flows forth from his It's hard for people to figure some things, but I, I read an estimate this week that they're saying, you know, someone's kind of figured this out, or a group of people have figured it out, that they're estimating that over the history of the world, there have been about 110 billion people that have lived on earth. Of those, about 8 billion are estimated to have been Christians. So you're talking about around 7% of all the people that have ever lived were Christians. Therefore, if we're wrong and Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, then there has been, through all of history, a host of people who have been bamboozled, hoodwinked into believing a lie. Not only believing a lie, but staking everything on that lie. 
Paul uses the conjunction if six times in this passage. The whole purpose of establishing and demonstrating how crucial and central the resurrection of Jesus is to our religion, demonstrating effectively that without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no religion. The whole thing falls apart like a house of cards. In other words, without the resurrection, Paul is saying that our faith is in, in, in vain. It will not save anyone. It is futile. Leaving us, of all people, to be those most pitied. Because we've trusted in untruth. The resurrection of Jesus is so central to Christianity that if you remove it, then everything else just falls apart. It collapses. If Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, our religion is entirely a lie, and it will not save anybody. In other words, we are in deep ways the whole time thinking otherwise. But, then comes the but. Sometimes but is not, doesn't turn out to be all that good a thing but in this case but is a very good exceptional thing Jesus has in fact been raised from the dead Paul knows it he knows it in a way that you and I don't know it Remember in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus that Jesus spoke directly to him. He knows it. He's not speculating that Christ is, is living. He's not guessing that he's not just hoping that it is. He's knowing that Christ lives. And you just look at the life of Paul. You, you, you can't find another person in history whose life was more dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ than the apostle Paul's was from the day that he was encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Talk about a life changed. The chief persecutor of the church became the greatest lover and propagator of the church. His life, his focus, everything was completely changed. The direction he was headed in was it became exactly the opposite.
Jesus suffered a lot, but I think the case can be made that no one, no one else suffered any more than the Apostle Paul did for his faith. Stoned, beaten, driven out of this place, that or other place, and this, that, and the other, thought very lowly of by people, trotted down by people. But he forged ahead because he knew the resurrection was true. There are a lot of people in this room that love each other a lot. Some people in this room have walked with one another as brothers and sisters of Christ for a very long time. Others have come here in more recent times, and I hope, I hope more, as much or more than anything else that, that they found a group of people here who loved Jesus with all of their heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And that they live for him. What treasure there is in the resurrection, knowing that, that if, if we're living at the time that Christ comes again, then we, our body will not die. It'll be transformed in the blink of an eye from what it is to, the, to glory. But we also know this, that all people that have ever lived on earth will be resurrected from the dead. Their souls, spirits will be reunited with their bodies. Some of them to glory and some of them to eternal destruction. No one's going to be able to opt out on this. It's not one of those things, well, I got the invite, but I'm not going to go. We will see it with our own eyes. We will hear with our own ears. We will know in the depth of our own heart for the first time that it is absolutely true. For now, let's face it, we do have our time of doubts. Sometimes we wonder. I don't know about you, but I long for the day when that'll just go away. And it really would be nice to be those chosen people that are actually living in the world at the time that Christ comes, because that would mean that we would never taste physical death. I mean, the prospect of never having to physically die is really appealing to me. I don't know about you. I don't know. There's hardly anybody that's really looking forward to it. And if you are, then you would have to wonder why. I want to 
occasionally there are people who have a death wish. I don't. I don't know about you. I just don't. There are some things that I do hope. One of the things I hope is this, is that when my time comes to die, that I do it well. That in my death, that I will honor and glorify the resurrected Christ. How do we do well in this life? And it's just simply by keeping our eyes on Jesus and focusing on, focusing on his promises he's made to us and living our life accordingly. Our life right now, where we're at, should at least bear some resemblance to his life. We'll yet have sin living in us. Every one of us still has it. So we need to understand that we, we're not going to achieve perfection in this life, any of us. Not until Christ comes, and then we will be made perfect. Absolutely. There's a sense in which death is, for us, a good thing. And I'm not encouraging anybody to run to it or anything. <laughs> Simply because it's yet another step in our redemptive history. Death for us is a step closer to Christ. A step away from the world and a step closer to him. Our bodies will be transformed in the resurrection. So we're going to be resurrected if we've died. And if not, we're going to be made perfect on the spot. But they're not going to be exactly the same. Paul uses a number of words here to describe what our resurrected body will be like. And one of those is it's imperishable. It will not wear out. It will con continue on like a fine-tuned machine running for all of eternity. No more arthritic joints. No more muscle atrophy. No more clogging blood vessels. No more hearts wearing out from constant use. No more confusion due to loss of brain function. 
And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced all of that stuff. We would think that a car that would get three or 400,000 miles would be doing well. Our resurrected body after 10 years of use will be just as good as it was when it started. It will be a glorious body, which pretty much means this, that, that, that we will bear a perfect reflection of the glory of God. Not that we will ever have God's glory. You remember Moses' face when it shone so brilliantly when he came down after, uh, off of Mount Sinai that people couldn't even look upon him, he had to wear a veil. And eventually over time it subsided. That was what being in the glory of God for a brief period of time did to Moses. It will be powerful. It will be raised in power, 1543. Power to be used eternally for God's glory. It will be a spiritual body. Now, what exactly that means, I can't tell you, so don't ask me. What I would say to you is something like this, maybe, and that is right now where we're at, the thing that's most prominent about us is our physical presence. There's a sense in which the spirit sits in the background. It's not what we immediately see or detect when we meet people. There's a sense in which I'm saying, what I'm saying is this is the spiritual is in a sense veiled right now by the physical. But in our resurrected state, our spiritual presence will take center stage. And the physical will fall into the background. We may be separated from one another for a time by death. But only for a time. You know, on the scale of eternity, we're talking about a very short period of time. Where we are right now, there's still sin that dwells in every one of us. And, and what that means is there are going to be trouble. There are going to be problems in our relationships with each other. Life is not always going to be hunky-dory. Sometimes life is going to seem very bad. 
But in the new heavens and the new earth, no more troubles, no more problems, no more difficulties, no more backsliding, no more giving ground where we shouldn't, no more not giving ground where we should. Perfect life in absolutely every way imaginable in ways that are not imaginable to us. That is what Christ has in store for us. That is why he was resurrected 2,000 years ago. That we would have glorious, truly wonderful, truly remarkable life in him forevermore.